Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Dwayne Frazier to our show. Dr. Frazier is the provost for Iowa Wesleyan University in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Hi, Dwayne. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to have that opportunity and uh, pull me all the way from good old Mount Pleasant here. So we're excited. Uh, Tell me about Iowa Wesleyan University and why students select your institution. Well, that's a that's a great question. You know, over the last eight years, I've discovered that answer more and more each year. And it's fascinating because this institution is actually older than the state of Iowa because it became an institution in 1842 when Iowa was just a territory. So we're the first co-educational institution uh, in all of Iowa. We were actually the Mount Pleasant Literary Institute before we became Iowa Western University. And interesting enough, the, you know, you go back in, in the history, this has been the school that's always been about inclusion and opportunity for students. And the reason that becomes so important was we were the first school where women had the opportunity to uh, study in Iowa. And, you know, that was a game changer back in the 1840s. And and over time, we've had the first woman uh, to become commander of the International Space Station. We've had the first woman to become a lawyer in American history. We've had the first black woman to get a master's degree west of the Mississippi River. So there's been a lot of firsts. Uh, in that area. And even today, um, it has a lot to do with the Methodist heritage and faith background of uh, just inclusivity. And this institution's always been about that. So I find it really special, um, personally, and fulfilling in my uh, professional career. So, so what's tell me about some of the programs there. Sure. So probably our most popular programs these days tends to be uh, the business program. We have quite a few different concentrations in that, you know, the traditional accounting, marketing, management, uh, sport management and agribusiness, which is really going to grow here. And it's already starting. That's our newer program, which is kind of ironic. We're set in the middle of Iowa, which is uh, one of the hotbeds for agriculture in the world. And uh, so that's been great. But also our criminal justice program is outstanding. We produce quite a few people going to law school, uh, students going on into law enforcement, into warden work, federal prisons. And then the biology program and psychology tends to uh, be majors that really move up. But we also have a good education, nursing program, lots of good programs here at the institution. It's just, uh, you know, probably the largest right now are the criminal justice and the business students. And uh, what's new or on the horizon that's going to happen in Westland? Sure. So um, I we actually just finished a new strategic plan that we were working on. And by looking at that strategic plan, we've been kind of uh, looking at what academic programs at the market um, would bear right now. And what do we really have to um you know, look for the future. And so what I did is actually kind of an analysis of all the job postings in a 150 mile radius of Mount Pleasant. And I looked at all the different positions and who was hiring and looking at skill sets and other items. And we're looking at a new master's degree in criminal justice, which will be helpful, uh, be able to bring in more people with those backgrounds for they could be supervisors. But we're also looking at, and I know this, you know, we probably should have had this years ago, but still um, never, you know, so I'd rather be late than never happen with right. this and started an information technology computer science program that allows us to work in some cybersecurity space, but also in some basic programming. Um, the need in this region is just 
um, like it is all over the country. So being able to get more qualified people to do that will be excellent. It really was highlighted to me, Dave, when we did our own search for some positions in IT, and we were lucky if we got one applicant um, because of remote learning and um, people remote work and, um, and just finding individuals and the price you have to pay. So if we can grow some of our own too, it'll help, but it'll help in our hospitals and our region. So we are really, you know, we're poised to get that program off the ground. It'll take us about 12 months between some HLC documentation for accreditation and then uh, just doing the formal study of it and get a faculty member here, which is never easy either because they can be out in the market making a lot more money. Yeah, you know, that I remember right before I retired, that was uh, uh, which would have been uh, probably around 2019, 2020. The IT was just blowing up. It was, it was, it, all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, look at this program. And you just started watching it grow and grow and grow and grow. So good for you guys for recognizing that and moving forward on that. Absolutely. And it'll, it'll be very helpful. And we continue to look at some things. We're actually, um, you know, for the institution in the next couple of years, uh, we're going to be um, finally going into the concept of schools or um, instead of academic divisions. And that's going to make some big differences, too, because we'll be in the market getting academic deans and uh, really heading up some of this academic entrepreneurship and some of the things we'll talk about later. Well, well, can you let's can you continue on that a little bit as far as I'm interested in, in the shift of where it was compared to where you're going with that? Sure. So, you know, looking back at the history of the institution, it actually was um, after Mount Pleasant Literary Institute, it became Iowa Wesleyan University. Uh, and that was a part of its global focus. It was like in 1880, 1890, the, the Methodist Church and missionaries were sending international students here, getting degrees, mostly to be able to be preachers and missionaries back in their home countries. But it was in like 1910s, maybe early 20s, that it became Iowa Wesleyan College. So when it became college, it was more of a focus on the liberal arts. So uh, you're looking at the traditional English degrees, humanities, and some of the items there that were more about that liberal arts approach, the Renaissance approach. Mm. Nothing wrong with that, but uh, for this region and what we need, in 2015, we actually reverted back to our original name of of Iowa Wesleyan University. And with that, we started our first graduate programs in our history because the graduate programs... We know this, Dave, you and I, I mean, and all the people in our careers, it's today's bachelor's degree was like yesterday's, uh, you know, high school diploma, because I mean, so many people are getting this. So we need to be able to have more for the students and the people of this region to set them apart. So, you know, we moved into that direction and now, you know, we're going to continue to add master's programs and it's really helping the region uh, retool um, and continue to get educated and, and helping with really supervisory roles and adjunct teachers for us and our community college partner. Oh, good. Well, let's talk a little bit about you. Let's um, let's talk about maybe the path that led you to become the provost at Wesley. Sure. So um, I was out in the middle of some fields and um, with crop circles, aliens landed and they said, we want to take you to the most remote part of the world. And I'm going to take you to Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Absolutely amazing. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But uh, the, the truth is, I am from rural America. I grew up in Appalachia, Dave, and uh, I'm actually a first generation high school graduate. So in my family and completed high school and, uh, you know, nothing wrong with blue collar jobs. I have wonderful people that would give you the shirt off their back. And um, but they growing up in the place, they didn't go very far from where they were born. So uh, God had a little different plan for me and uh, ended up uh, 
you know, taking the route of getting my bachelor's, my master's, a couple of those, and my PhD. And um, this route of provost, I'll be honest with you, I studied under probably the best, the best vice president for academic affairs anywhere in the world. His name's Dr. Frank Cheatham. He's retired, but he was at Campbellsville University and, uh, you know, still a very close mentor and father figure uh, friend of mine. I wasn't raised by my parents. So having those male figures later in life, it's always been very important. So he instilled in me the importance of structure and using my skills because I am a talker, if you haven't noticed yet. And uh, I enjoy talking with people, getting to meet new people. And, um, you know, this whole route of becoming an academic vice president and a provost, it all started learning from him when I was back in an undergraduate and uh, he would tease me, but he said, you're going to do you know, great things and I know you will and I'm proud of you. And just hearing that kind of words from a person I respected so much was important. And then uh, seven, eight years ago, I was the associate academic vice president for him. Um, I got a phone call from a search firm and they said, we want to get somebody that's not the traditional academic vice president. We need someone to come in and shake things up in a good way. Somebody that's going to look at things in a different perspective. It's going to have a different relationship with faculty and students. And, um, you know, and maybe you need to have six kids, which I do. So it ended up working out perfect. Now, they didn't ask about six kids, but you know what I'm saying. Ended up coming all the way to Mount Pleasant, Iowa from Appalachia. And they call it Mount Pleasant here, Dave, and there's no hill anywhere in sight. They tricked me to get me here. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, when did you, was it 2015? Is that what I saw? Is that, when did you start? Yes, sir. It was 2015. I packed my bags and, uh, you know, like Beverly Hillbillies moved all the way out here. So you've been in that position for about seven years then, huh? Yeah, it's, it's, it's closing in. Yeah, it's seven. Um, the time period will be, um, yeah, seven years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so then what's been the proudest moment so far for you there at the university? Oh, the proudest moment. I'm just thinking in my mind, um, you know, I'll try to think of one moment, but I'll give you a couple moments for a second here. Whenever I can give out the Chadwick Teacher of the Year to the top teacher in the institution, I get to read all the comments from the students, from other faculty colleagues, from, um, you know, other individuals. The moment you get to do that, because I love surprises. I'm that guy that wanted to jump out and scare you on your birthday and go surprise and all that. So, you know, I end up um, secretly inviting their families to the graduation ceremony because it's there. So they have no idea. They think their families went somewhere and to see their faces in tears when their kids or their husband or wife is walking up and and uh, like, what are you doing? How'd you get, you know, and that big smile and being able to give that award for people that do so selfless work and um, teaching. There's nobody that gets paid what they deserve to be a teacher uh, in any field from higher education to uh, the K through 12 system. They do it because they love it. So the, that's always one of my favorite times. Commencement is just an unbelievable day. I'm exhausted because I'm the one that gets to read the names. But when I read somebody's name, I try to read it so loud that everybody hears it. I, the last thing I ever want is for people to be clapping from the person in front of them. And then you don't hear your son or daughter's name. So I take a lot of pride in the way that I even read names um, at our commencement service. So, you know, I'd say just the commencement service are right there. But when I talked about like just singular moments, um, I would talk about when I first started and launched the international program here. Uh, that's probably my proudest moment. My background is I am a PhD in international education has been my focus. It was the first part of my career. And it's what changed my life when a little poor guy from Appalachia goes off to college and his first roommate's an international roommate. 
the rest of its history. And we're now the largest percentage of international students of any private school in Iowa. And empirically, wow. we're only behind Drake in terms of total number of international students. And it's not from one country because I do a lot of work to diversify that. I have 35 countries sitting on this campus, Dave, in the middle of rural America. It's like a many United Nations that every student writes about uh, in their student evaluations of saying, you know what? That's one of the greatest strengths. I never knew that I could learn this much about people from around America and from around the world. So tell me a little bit more about the international programs that are there. So the international students here, um, you know, it's interesting right now. Um, I was able to steal away from uh, the Toledo school system. One of my former students, she was teaching there for 10 years. She was a Chinese language teacher for the school system. And so she's back here now. She's my assistant dean running the operations for me. And I work obviously closely with her. And then I've got a staff, one young man that worked on the JET program teaching in Japan, speaks fluent Japanese, speaks fluent um, Spanish, uh, and was an international studies major and undergraduate. So a young fellow doing that. And then a lady in the community who's just an outstanding soul. She's um, originally from Bolivia, so she's Spanish and English. So we've got five, six languages being spoken there. My language of study was Spanish. And um, we try to do so much to engage the students, but not just the students on this campus and in this community. We engage the entire community. We have people that come and celebrate with us when we have holidays. I mean, things that are important, for example, we just celebrated the Holy Festival for Hinduism. And so we had all the colors that they could throw on each other. We had people from the community come and join. And tomorrow, I am taking five different groups of international students, and there's 15 speakers at the high school, and we're five of the transition uh, places you can go to to learn about people and culture from around the world. It's part mm -hmm. of their anti-bullying campaign. So we are a resource for the entire community because I honestly believe we have the best international program in the state of Iowa bar no one. Iowa State, Iowa, you and I, our students will tell you this is their home. And I mean, our students have done some pretty amazing things. I mean, our our former international student just, just finished his career as the president of the University of Maryland. One of our other, that's Dr. Wallace Lowe. One of our international students is on the currency of Nigeria. He was the first uh, secretary of treasury or minister of the central bank. And so his name was Dr. Clement Isong. I mean, we just, we've had international students. One right now is the vice president of marketing for all Chinese bank of the United States. So, um, you know, I could go on and on, but I love to brag about our students. That's, uh, that's what gets me up every day. Well, you should be really proud of all those accomplishments your students are doing for sure. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, so as an academic leader, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned so far? Oh, you know, I, just as an academic leader and as a leader in general, that I always have struggled with it and I've learned to get better as I get older and that's listening. Uh, sometimes people just wanna be heard and it, it might just be a student. It might just be a faculty member. It might be your colleague, you, you know, you don't know. And, and it's something that, you know, that all of us as humans struggle in some route, but like I said, I've always been like, oh man, you wanna solve it, you wanna fix it. That's who I am. But sometimes, like I said, people just want to be heard. And so as a leader, being able to listen um, with empathy, not sympathy, being able to understand what they're coming through, even if sometimes you don't completely, trying to ask those probing questions that allow you to do that. So as a leader, um, it's really that listening. 
And for me, um, I'm all about Ken Blanchard and servant leadership. Um, if I if I won't go move chairs and move tables and and help students move in their their boxes and things, I can't expect anybody else to do it. Yeah. So a move-in day and other times, I'm out there with parents moving in stuff, getting to meet them, talking to them, and a few minutes later they'll say, "He's the provost of the university." Well, yes, he is. Yeah, he's not quite as strong as he used to be, but you know, my kids and I would come and we would help during those time periods, and it's just been an absolute blessing. So never ask somebody to do something that you won't do yourself. It sounds like a good community environment there. It is. I mean, all communities are, you know, communities. They're a bunch of people and humans and uh, nothing's ever perfect. But here is a special place and uh, some really special people that, you know, I've grown to love like family. So, Well, what advice can you give new university provosts? Yeah. So if I was talking to somebody and I've did a little bit of that at Council of Independent Colleges and places where you meet some first year provosts that are just getting into it or people that are interested is, you know, sometimes it will feel like an island. You will feel like you are alone because even with other vice presidents and the president, it, there's just so different what we deal with and what we work with than a vice president for enrollment, a vice president for finance. You know, it doesn't mean it's better. It's just different. And when it's different, You've got to make sure that you get professional time yourself to actually talk to people like you, Dave, get to know people, get to talk with individuals that's been doing this for a while. You don't have to necessarily have a mentor. I mean, having a mentor would be great, but sometimes it's hard to get someone that's active in their career to mentor somebody when they have the busy jobs that we already have as provost. So attending like Council of Independent Colleges, HLC or SAC COC or Middle States, sending those places where you get a chance to meet people that have similar careers as you and uh, and just have somebody you can bounce some ideas off of. I mean, believe it or not, even as old as I am, I've been a vice president of a university or on a senior leadership team now for like 10, 12, 13 years. And so, you know, and there's always been people I've been able to talk to and there's always people more experienced than you, which is you know, and seek those people out and really take it as nuggets of advice that can really help you because there's not always one size fits all, but usually you can always get good information from people that's been in the career for a while. Has your leadership style evolved then over the years or is it pretty much still the same? It's evolved. It certainly has. Um, I was telling you earlier and just talking informally that I do love humor. I love to make people laugh and smile. And, you know, when students, I'll go out and, and um, I was a basketball player and soccer player and played college soccer. And so I'll go out and, you know, kick the ball around and the kids won't believe it. Like I, I can still juggle and do tricks with the ball. And they're like, what are you doing? I was like, cause I'll, I'll play that thing. Like I, I don't know what I'm doing and say, I'll have a competition with you. You buy me a Coke if I can beat you and I'll buy you one. Then all of a sudden they don't realize I can juggle with my legs and feet or I can shoot free throws still really good. I get that on the kids all the time. Oh man, you're in a suit. There's no way like, yeah, you're probably right. Let's do best of three. If I miss all of them, I'll buy you two Cokes, you know, and then I beat them. I love doing that. I'm competitive. I enjoy that, but I love building the relationships with people that part hasn't changed. It's just, you have to adapt. Like with students like the build relationships, I do different things than I would do with, you know, an academic friend of mine or something. There's some friends that like to sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about um, everything from, you know, geopolitics to philosophy to everything. So you really have to adjust. And I've had to learn to do that because, you know, growing up as a kid in Appalachia, everything was about sports and 
you know, wanting to be a Kentucky Wildcat basketball player, which I was never good enough to do. So we all, you know, dream of that shooting against the barn. Uh, but, you know, I've had to learn to adjust and learn to deal and work with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And uh, it's been fascinating. And I'm still growing. I'm growing. And my leadership style changes probably every year, Dave, a little bit. Well, what do you think are going to be the major cha- uh, challenges and opportunities that universities will face over the next five to 10 years? Well, the one that we're going to see, and it's already starting uh, quite quickly, is the demographic cliff. Um, we're seeing less and less uh, college-age students. So we're more schools buying for less people than maybe any time in history. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to do when, when that happens. You're going to have to see institutions be quite innovative and start thinking about the future in different ways and how we deliver education. So uh, that demographic cliff is, is a major challenge. And, you know, the pandemic, the remnants of the pandemic, there are things that have affected us in our education that will not change for a long time or will permanently change. I have lost, Dave, so many employees in the last couple of years to jobs that allow them to work completely from home. And I don't even know what I'm supposed to do because it, it at this point, you know, I see myself as pretty innovative and always have been. But <clears throat> what do you do when a faculty member applies for a job and says, I'd like to do all of this remotely? And my students are not those students. They're not the ones that do as well in online education. And they need the time, the face-to-face interaction. So I'm going to continue to explore, you know, what we can to be creative. But we have, you know, state-funded institutions with a lot more money that are telling people, you can be a library director and work from home completely. I can't match that because of the small size of this institution and our staff. I don't have 10 staff members where three can be on campus one, you know, one day and, and three not. It's just so and that's what small institutions are going to face, too, is, you know, this remote workplace. It's going to continue to affect them. So there's quite a bit going on. I, I still think that geopolitics will continue to play in the world from the war in Ukraine to other type of challenges we're seeing. Um, you know, we've got some students that are from Russia and Ukraine here. And we're making sure they're able to stay as long as they need to and and really being very careful not to um, just whatever they can pay so that we can make sure they're taken care of. You know, it's a little small part we can do to to help people in the world. And, um, you know, I've got kids, you know, sometimes people forget how much the Russian people are being hurt in this as well uh, on a financial end. Now, obviously, the Ukraine with people dying and things, there's no comparison, but um, we've got kids whose parents um, bank account all of a sudden went to one fifth of what it was and their parents are standing in lines to get food. I mean, it breaks your heart, the whole situation. So hopefully we can come to some type of diplomatic resolution there soon as well. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned the pandemic, you know, there are some academic leaders who believe that students lost ground during this ac- or, um, this pandemic academically. So do you have any ideas of what can resolve that issue? Yeah. Uh, first of all, time machines. Do you have any time machines that we can go back when they were like those two years those kids lost? Because if you can find that time machine, you and I are going to make a lot of money and we're going to be in the next Michael J. Fox Back to the Future episode with a DeLorean. But, um, you know, I'm being facetious, but the truth is um, I see it, too. We're seeing students who have their engagements very different. 
we'll have an activity, a comedian, or we'll have a special event. And we have to mandate to get students there. They're just not used to participating like they did pre-pandemic. And we have a generation of students coming through that are amazing kids. But I mean, it was such a traumatic event where, you know, their family, their mom is trying to work or dad, all these extra hours and Maybe they didn't have good internet where they were out in rural America or inner city and um, international students that are getting here that's, you know, seen this pandemic do some absolutely crazy things. So, you know, how to get them back up to speed, it's going to be it's going to be difficult. What we've done is we have focused on a student success center. Uh, Even when we didn't have enough money, we went out and we really worked to where first year students are all academically advised, even at a school our size, by professional academic advisors. Our faculty are amazing teachers, but when they have so many uh, committees and things to do that advising is not always something, I mean, yeah, the nuts and bolts of advising, but advising so much deeper than that, talking to the students about emotions and about what they're dealing with, you know, not counseling, but more of being a big brother or a big sister. So we really invested in that student success center. Um, We're starting to see some results there that's helping the students as they try to get caught up. Uh, We do have obviously some um, elementary and rudimentary levels of uh, general education that some for non-credit and some for credit to just try to get the students up to speed. But um, the other VPAAs and provosts you speak to, they are absolutely right. We're seeing that with our students too, that, you know, many of them have, um, that they honestly are still functioning on like a ninth or 10th grade level in terms of social, um, social maturity and emotional intelligence. Well, you know, I know a lot of campuses right now are worrying about the mental health, both of their students and faculty. So what are you guys doing to tackle that problem there? We have hit it full force. We are running into it like um, like you would never see before. So we're a partner with what's called the JED program. The JED program um, is, is mostly focused on anti-suicide um, uh, training and programs that um, helps in the community. We, uh, a few years ago, just hired a full-time mental health counselor that um, will see clients or students that even if they don't have insurance, we have partnered with um, some mental health providers in the area, which there's a shortage of them as well. And so they come on campus and they help um, when we do referrals because our counselor can't meet with everyone. So they try to give um, opportunities to move to a professional counselor outside of them after two or three visits. And then the other thing that we did that we, this is major and you and I hadn't talked about this before, but we just signed um, a significant contract with Timely MD and Timely MD is telehealth and every student will have access to mental health counselors 24 hours a day, seven days a week um, within the hour um, when they put in uh, messages and, uh, and they're asking, depending on the severity of what they need to speak with someone about. And Timely MD will also help with prescriptions uh, that might be needed. So, um, you know, this is a new program that was led by us and the faculty in consultation with um, our behavioral science club, who's very active on campus of students. And uh, we discovered, you know, this is what we need to do. We might not have the money to do it um, in some sense, but what we know is we must do it. So we just signed that contract within the last month. So nice question that, that rolled right in perfectly. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier that your students really want face-to-face interaction more than they want online. And I know, 
you know, all students are different. Some do better online, some do better face-to-face, some need a hybrid. But do you think that there's going to be a change at all in the, in the role of the physical campus in the, in the not too distant future? Or is that going to pretty much stay the same? Or do you think it's going to change over the next few years? You know, I really wish I had a crystal ball. And in that crystal ball, I would love to be able to understand what is going on right now. And, you know, how can we change things and improve? Because, you know, there's different groups, different students that have different needs. We know that. But, um, you know, there has to be some major changes on campuses. When you look at these small campuses like us, the one thing we can't do is say, you know, financial aid, we have three people there two of you all are working from home and one's working in there. I mean, the the person face-to-face would be overwhelmed. It's just like you and I, when we make a phone call and we end up getting, you know, an automated system, we we kept going, live person, live person, keep hitting the buttons. And I'm like, the phone's finally going to get me to live person, you know, and and students and they they act like consumers and they are, they want to be able to get that information. But what's going to change is, Um, you're going to see different levels of engagement because some people um, don't want the same engagement. Maybe there is going to be more Zoom meetings that you're going to see for classes and Zoom study halls. Um, Maybe you're going to have students that are not on the physical campus uh, working more often in hybrid locations, leaving for two weeks, coming back and everything. One thing that we did do that's going to stand long past the pandemic is every single class now has what's called a new companion, which is a Canvas, the LMS um, tool that's actually set up. And we include it now, all the students' textbooks free to the students there. And it has the syllabi, it has all the assignments, it usually has PowerPoints, there's sometimes quizzes in there. And so it's basically there, they upload sometimes Zoom videos, they'll put the link for where classes if someone's not there. And we did that just in case there's a COVID pandemic, uh, you know, outbreak in this region or something that's uh, significant where we have to send students home or or something like that. So we're going to see a lot more of students coming in and out of courses, uh, sometimes for health reasons. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, it's physical health, sometimes it's mental health. So um, that's one of the bigger changes we're going to see. But I really don't know all the things that are going to happen. I, you know, I kind of wish I did. Like I said at the beginning, let's get the DeLorean and we'll go back in time and in time and we'll we'll make some money, Dave. Well, here's a here's an interesting question. How how can higher ed institutions develop a culture of academic entrepreneurship? No, that's a that's a really interesting you know question to ponder because when you're out in the business world the businesses like the teslas or the facebook's or these um, other tech companies or whatever microsoft during its time you know they were revolutionary they had all these ideas and they put things together and they failed at times until they finally got it right i mean i have no idea how many times but to put a tesla together and and everything that that went into all the trial and error. I just think back Henry Ford and how many times he failed before the Model T. Um, there's so many things that come in entrepreneurship. And ultimately, it's not easy. And there's schools that try to do this all the time. I'm going to teach entrepreneurship. I'm not sure it's easy to do that. You can teach some of the principles of what you have to do about open, flexible thinking, critical thinking, and all of this. But you really have to have somebody that uses that creative part of their brain that's looking at things outside of it. And it usually comes from a good liberal arts foundation education. When these people have these bachelor's degrees and 
and they focused on an education that it's allowed them to really think outside the box and look at something. You know, I say it all the time when we get RN nurses that are going in the community, and that's very important. But it's very different when you get a BSN nurse or an MSN nurse. That BSN nurse is looking at not just the, the symptoms and saying, oh, this is I've learned you got to get them this or this type of medication or go tell the doctor. They're looking at all of the surroundings, everything that goes together to synthesize the information so that they can make an educated hypothesis when they talk to the healthcare provider. So when you're trying to build this whole entrepreneurship culture, what you've got to do is get people together to really think and start thinking about what is important um, to a community, to a region. Um, it was about eight, nine years ago when um, the president that hired me got here. Um, and uh, when he first got here, he said it was interesting. The faculty told him that, you know, we went from sitting under a tree talking about what the world needs to becoming the institution that goes out into the world and asks them what they need. And that's the difference in being an academic entrepreneur. You're going out in the world, you are engaging those communities and think tanks doing um, advisory boards of business and nursing and education and all these things, criminal justice, and you're finding out what they wish they had learned. And you're putting that in your curriculum as a part of your institutional learning outcomes or program learning outcomes. And you're trying to develop a student that will walk in the world and be able to look at things a totally different way. They don't just see a problem, they see an issue that needs a solution and they wanna find that solution. Well, here's a fun question. If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? No strings attached. Um, it kind of probably depends on how much I have. Um, I would love to subsidize um, our students tend to come from challenging backgrounds like I did personally. So our expected family contribution of zero uh, mm -hmm. tends to be about 60% of our students. Uh, we love serving that clientele because like I said, for me, it's people I feel at most home with because it's my background as well. I'd love to subsidize um, you know, study abroad opportunities for them to be able to have additional money so they can go uh, on trips because not everybody can afford it. Um, I'm getting ready to take them on a 17 day trip. I'm leaving after graduation. I've got a group of students that are going. I was able to keep the price, Dave, at $3,000 for meals, housing, tuition, everything. I mean, I did. I used every partnership I had to get the price down as low as I could, um, but I'd still like to see it less expensive for students. So, you know, if I had untouchable, you know, I'd do that now. If I had a lot more money, I'd build a new classroom building. I need some new state-of-the-art resident halls. I'd like to have some new microscopes. I'd like to have all kinds of different things, maybe a statue of me standing some, not, maybe not that one, but you know, it would probably get vandalized as they would think it was very funny the students to throw eggs at it. <laughs> well, here's my last question. Do you have any favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? Yeah, and I mean, you know, um, I, the traditional seven habits, Stephen Covey is absolutely amazing when you look at everything that Covey does today. That's one that I always appreciated. Um, you know, um, I think um, a couple others, I mean, the energy bus is a great one. Um, the Jim Collins, good to great. I think I use this all the time. I have so many employees that I know are good. What is that recipe? What do they need just a little bit more to get them to be a great employee? And I try to use that in my performance evaluations with employees, uh, trying to help them as well. 
Um, Simon Sinek and uh, his TED Talks have been really good. I've been enjoying everything he does. He uh, makes me laugh as well, but looking for that center and understanding, you know, people and, and behavior. Um, those are good. Um, I'm all about Maxwell, um, another wonderful uh, person to be able to read John Maxwell. I like his background, uh, you know, also from being in a big church and, and how he had to be the CEO of the church and how he explains how that applies to our real world today. So, and then of course the servant leadership with Ken Blanchard. So, you know, I, I enjoy books that inspire me um, and make me think emotionally as well um, from a faith background to um, just a background about, you know, how you can be the best person you are um, and by giving to people. You know, I have six children. Three of my children are adopted from mission work in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so, you know, God's blessed me. I wasn't raised by my parents, so I wanted to make sure I had an opportunity to help someone else in their life. And, um, you know, they've been home for 11 years now and, uh, you know, big family that uh, sometimes is expensive and that keeps us running. And uh, just this uh, yesterday, Dave, my son is a state of Iowa wrestling champion and one of the winningest wrestlers in Iowa history where they worship wrestling. He signed to wrestle in the Big Ten and then we'll be wrestling at Indiana University and uh, so we're pretty excited about that. That was a big day for our family yesterday. Well, that's a nice place to end our conversation. Yes, sir. Um, thanks so much for being on our show today. This was this was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And hey, if you find that endless budget money, we'll build that statue. <laughs> there you go. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.